Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Dufton, and today I'm talking to Benjamin Y. Fong, author of the new book, Quick Fixes, Drugs in America, From Prohibition to the 21st Century Binge, which was just released in July by Verso Books. Ben is an honors faculty fellow and an associate director of the Center for Work and Democracy at Arizona State University and his work has appeared in Jacobin, Catalyst, and the New York Times. Previously, Ben's work focused on the, usually negative, effects of neoliberal capitalism, writing about NGOs, labor leaders, and healthcare. Quick Fixes expands this examination into the world of drugs, examining nine different kinds of intoxicants and five orienting claims that place their use within the larger capitalist histories. I'm looking forward to talking about all that and much more with him today. So thanks, Ben, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to open our conversation by asking you how you came to this topic. Writing about drugs, there's not a lot of us who do it. So what made you want to dive into this topic? Yeah, I think that the um, the animus was mostly, you know, just anecdotal. I um had noticed that uh, a lot of people who, uh, you know, in the past, I wouldn't consider to be sort of heavy recreational drug users, all of a sudden trying different, different things um, that are, you know, still schedule one substances, but, uh, but they, you know, had a greater openness to trying different things at the same time that I know that a lot of people are on uh, different kinds of psychiatric medications today and all the things you know, just in uh, just fr- from the people I know talking to, it sort of seemed like drug use was escalating in different ways. And uh, when I looked into the numbers, uh, it, it it was clearly the case. Um, you know, if you look at uh, drug use, drug consumption trends in the 21st century, basically all the trends are high and going up. So um, I think that most listeners will be. Uh, aware of the most familiar trend, which is the opioid crisis and associated deaths of despair. But it's really across the board. If you look at um, 
benzodiazepines, amphetamines, antidepressants, antipsychotics, marijuana, uh, all of these trends are going up in the 21st century, uh, with the notable exception of cocaine, which is kind of interesting. Um, and, you know, and, and this is all happening at the same time that we still have this uh, zombified drug war that's continuing apace uh, with a full one-fifth of um, the incarcerated in for nonviolent drug offenses. Uh, and I, you know, I take this to be a massive paradox. It's sort of one component of the American exception. And I wanted to make sense of it. Right. I love that. I, I love that idea. And so, I mean, I read a lot of books about drugs, right? And everybody has their focus. Sometimes it's on race or crime or the history or effects of a specific substance. But your lens is really different. This is an explicitly capitalist critique, which I found really interesting. And through this lens, you make your five orienting claims, which for listeners who maybe haven't read the book yet, you know, it's only been out a month, give them some time. Um, I'm just going to run through them real quick. So the first one is that work structures normal drug use into a dosing regimen. The second is that psychopharmacology is the science of treating atomization. The third is that drug producers are typical capitalist organizations. The fourth is that the difference between licit and illicit drugs is a class distinction. And the fifth is that drug policy is not about drugs. So let me just say amen <laughs> to these claims because I'm totally bought in. Um, but still, these are some pretty big claims. So I thought, do you want to discuss one specifically or should we talk about them in total and like the effects you argue that they have on American society? How do you want to, how do you want to dive into this? Um, we could talk about them individually. Um, I, I think that, as you say, they're all, uh, they're, they're meant to be somewhat evocative claims, even if also orienting claims. And so it might be better to unpack each one, um, but just about the, um, the sort of overall critique, right? Sort of seeing American drug use through the lens of the kinds of stresses that capitalist society has, uh, sort of enacts upon us. Um, I, it's really difficult, I think, to see um, you know, both the zeal behind drug prohibitionism as well as the scale of American drug use and not connected in some way to the kinds of, um, you know, alienation and, and stress uh, in, in American society. And that's really sort of the focus of, of the book. You know, I think that there, um, you know, there are, uh, you know, uh, zealous drug cultures in other countries. There are enthusiastic temperance movements in other countries. But it's really in the United States that we get this both intense demonization of drugs and vilification of drug users uh, at the same time that we're just taking, you know, massive amounts of, uh, of drugs. Um, and I want to say that's because of other industrialized nations were sort of uniquely subject to the predations of, of the market. There, there really aren't, um, you know, countervailing political forces or structures out there. There's uh, a very, very frayed uh, social safety net. Um, and as a result, I think that really fuels um, both drug prohibitionism and drug enthusiasm, because we can't deal with the social ills of America in other ways. Uh, we turn to drugs, uh, both their consumption and demonization. It's so true, right? The, the, the scales are kind of going in opposite directions uh, with, with <laughs> brute force as prohibitionism uh, increases in certain ways, but not in all ways, right? You, you talk a little bit about this when you um, 
examine some specific substances as well. And, you know, I know I'm jumping away from the orienting claims and I'm going into your histories of drugs, but we will, we will return to the claims, I promise. But you kind of, <laughs> the one place where prohibition isn't uh, necessarily increasing is, of course, in, in the realm of cannabis, which is being effectively legalized on the state level. I mean, my God, it's almost it's almost half of the country now. But again, that's still driven by these same capitalistic forces that that nonetheless drive the rest of your claims. So here, we're back to the claims. Okay, back to the claims. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, right. talk about cannabis for just a second, though. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it really has sort of like led the way. And, in, and I think in many ways, the uh, coming, uh, it's no longer even a psychedelic renaissance. It's kind of a full-fledged psychedelic enlightenment. Uh, marijuana really sort of uh, laid the groundwork for legalization movements and psychedelics. And it, as you say, it's, it, it's sort of a strange moment that that um, that old drive towards drug prohibition, it's still around. You see it uh, in certain corners, but I, I would say it's sort of lost its animating force, you know, on both sides of the political spectrum. I think people see the war on drugs as really um, flawed in its conception and also, also pernicious in its consequences. Um, but that being said, you know, on the liberal left, uh, for so long, the instinctive reaction to uh, drug consumption in general has just been to be flatly against the war on drugs. And I think that that's, that's right. That's the right position to take. But we're, we're kind of at a different moment now. You know, we're at a moment where there are these massive um, and very profitable uh, cannabis companies and psychedelic startups. You know, Peter Thiel is cornering the, the market in synthetic psilocybin. Elon Musk is talking about uh, how great ketamine is. Um, and at this particular moment, people are still talking about legalization as if it's just a social justice issue. And it's, it's not. It's, you know, I, I sort of see legalization as, uh, you know, somewhat like the privatization of Medicare. It's taking something that was previously outside of the realm of profit extraction and moving it into it. And what happens when that when that's the case, you know, um, in, in many ways, destigmatization and decriminalization are, are great things, especially compared to the punitive attitude of the 80s and 90s. Uh, but we're at a very different, different moment historically as well. Isn't it fascinating how drugs have become something that is supported and like most anything else in American culture on a bipartisan level, I will always remember photos of uh, rioters vaping in the Capitol Rotunda on January 6th. I thought, okay, pot has clearly, if we're even in QAnon, you know, like if pot's even there, it's it's really reached, uh, it's saturated kind of a, a bipartisan market. And it reminds me of um, the Michael Jordan quote, right? Uh, Republicans buy sneakers too. I do find that these legalizing companies, uh, as they become above ground, are reaching out to new varieties of consumers and trying to appeal to them in various ways. I think cannabis marketing is uh, is a really fascinating field, and I hope someone's tracking it for a dissertation somewhere. You know? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. No, it's it, there's an interesting way in which um, attitudes towards drugs cut across the the, the, the typical partisan lines. So, um, I think probably most of your listeners know that. Uh, you know, the, the drug war was very much a bipartisan issue. Uh, President Joe Biden uh, was one of the most, uh, you know, zealous drug warriors back in the day. Um, and, you know, today it's still um, strangely bipartisan, sort of like flies underneath the, um, the intense polarization of the president. Right. So we'll talk a little bit about maybe the effects of this uh 
increasingly symbiotic nature uh, in supporting the end of the drug war. But before we get to what we're supposed to do with the drug war, let's talk about all these claims you make about it. You seem to say that it's almost like uh, we don't choose drugs, drugs choose us. What's going on with these claims? Would you like to talk about normal dosing, uh, dosing regimen, atomization, capitalist organizations, class distinctions, or drug policy? <laughs> sure. I mean, maybe we could start with the first, uh, the the first claim, um, which is just about the, uh, the the ways in which we take drugs in in contemporary society, um, which is uh, you know very very different from how we've taken drugs um, in a in a more trans historical sense. You know, so. Um, human beings have always taken drugs for, you know, pretty <laughs> straightforward reasons. They make us feel better. Um, but the, the forms of drug consumption in, uh, I would say, you know, most, histi- most societies, uh, you know, throughout uh, space and time have been quite different. You know, they're, they're used to, um, you know, they're used for social and communal fellowship. They're used uh, for, for different kinds of like religious experiences. They aren't used uh, in the kind of brutally instrumental way in which we use them today, which is primarily to either get up for the day in the morning uh, in order to perform better uh, at your job um, or to, um, you know, briefly unwind in those in those moments of leisure time in order to sort of like prepare for the next day. That's a very um, uh, instrumental way in which to take drugs. I wouldn't say it's necessarily... It's, it's not necessarily tied to um, to uh, overall increases in drug consumption, but it is it is you know just a brutally instrumental way to take drugs to sort of just see them as uppers, uppers and downers. Um, and I, I want you know I, I sort of draw out that lesson uh, most forcefully in the psychedelics chapter. You know, I mean psychedelics um, are are drugs that potentially allow us to get to the outer reaches of human experience. Uh, and yet, how are they being used today? Well, they're being used to, you know, in in microdoses by Silicon Valley tech executives, so that they can, uh, you know, better perform at their at their shareholder meetings or whatever. Um, the the drugs that have are, are most, um, you know, that most great against the imperatives of capitalist society, even those have been instrumentalized today. Right. So you're saying that. Drugs have become less a, a sort of singular experience and now into an almost daily regimen to either help us through the day or to give us some relief uh, whenever that is possible. How does that then tie to your second claim that psychopharmacology is the science of treating atomization? What does atomization have to do with this? Yeah, that, that claim I would say is developed um, most comprehensively in the chapter on uh, psychotropics, on, on psychiatric medications. Um, and, and in that chapter, I, uh, you know, chart the history of, um, you know, it's a very broad history of the treatment of nervous disorders in the United States. And, and one thing that I noticed up until basically the, you know, 1970s, 1980s, is that um, when, when people took drugs, and this was evident uh, not only in, in popular discourses about drugs, but also uh, you know, visible in drug advertisements, when people talked about the reasons that they took drugs, there were there were very um, noticeable social references included in in the appeals. So, uh, you know, so, sometimes you see on social media and whatnot uh, advertisements for psychiatric drugs from the nineteen sixties and seventies, and, 70s and 
they can oftentimes be quite uh, disturbing. Um, but but one thing that's very honest about the, the advertisements is that they they reflect social imperatives. So um, you know the essential lesson there is well you know why do you want these drugs that we're selling? It's because you're dealing with all of these stressors you know at in in the home at work in society at large, and our drugs are here to help you feel better. Um, that's a that's a pretty straightforward claim. It doesn't necessarily speak well of the society that we live in, um, but there's an honesty there's an honesty to it. Um, with the biological revolution in psychiatry, where you know the entire psychiatric discourse became oriented around uh, around you know neurotransmitters and serotonin reuptake and all this stuff, that that social reference was kind of lost, and so today, in the official justifications around different um, uh, mental illnesses, uh, different neurotransmitter theories are typically invoked as the cause of specific of specific illnesses. Um, but the entire social reference is is occluded. And and one thing I want to get back to in the book is to say, well, a lot of the reason that we take drugs, and we we know this at some commonsensical level is that we're stressed out by the different things going on in our lives and in society. And when you, when you occlude um, uh, that reference with this whole neurobiological discourse, it becomes really difficult to understand you know, why we're taking drugs at all. Right, right. So your, your first two claims are kind of personal, right? Directed at the individual, the user uh, of drugs and the reasons why they're using them. But your third claim shifts to directing um, your lens at, at system and specifically drug distribution systems. Uh, you say drug producers are typical capitalist organizations. And that's something I'm thinking about a lot in my current work on medication-assisted treatment and the privatization of that former public field. Uh, but talk a little bit about, about this. Drug producers are typical capitalist organizations. What do you mean? Sure. So there's two senses in which to tackle this question. One's on the licit side or the legal side, and one's on the illicit or uh, illegal side. Um, and you know, to 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 tackle the first one uh, first, with with big pharma, you oftentimes hear it described as a particularly corrupt uh, industry. Um, and uh, it, it's true in a way, but you know, wh- of what does its corruption consist? Well, you know, they. They lobby and they sometimes bribe politicians. They artificially stimulate demand through oftentimes, oftentimes ridiculous advertising. Um, they they suppress negative press. They maintain exclusive patents. It, really, their supposed evil is in doing all of those things that every company does, uh, except with uh, powerful government apparatuses uh, regulating them and selling very powerful psychoactive substances. But in the essence, the business model is the same as that of any any corporation. Um, on the on the illicit side, you know, this is where the sort of you know romance of the illegal sort of comes in, and specifically on. Um, uh, you know, television shows that are quite popular, Narcos, Breaking Bad, The Wire, etc. You get this idea that illicit drug uh, cartels um, are particularly sort of insidious, evil organizations. But really, most of them kind of operate according to principles you could learn in business school. It's it's kind of unglamorous stuff in a lot of ways. Um, the, the the one exception is, uh, is is the extraordinary violence in the drug trade, um, but. But even this, uh, I would say, and, and I'm here. I'm following um, anthropologist Philippe Bourbois, 
the, the violence essentially um, operates according to market principles. You know, there's not some inherent ruthlessness out there. It's you know, d- displays of violence on the street. You could almost think of as, as human capital development from a certain perspective. Um, so I think in both in in both senses, um, there's not some otherworldly evil at work in the drug market. Um, it's just the typical uh, incentives of profit extraction at work in in sort of disparate ways. Um, and, and that being said, I think there is uh, generally good reason why we tend to think of drug organizations as abnormal, um, uh, as abnormal profit-seeking organizations, and that's because. You know, they're very convenient scapegoats. We can project all of our anxieties about our, our, our society onto these drug organizations so that it's not us that's involved in something, you know, unthinkably exploitative. It's those, you know, drug-addled uh, corporations and cartels over there. Um, so vilifying the drug trade, I think it's a very um, useful way to, to, to kind of make us feel better about ourselves. That's interesting, right? Like, what what brings on these narratives? What makes us want to believe that the legal drug market should be completely benevolent and outside of larger capitalist and profit-driven drives? And what makes us think that the illegal market has to be entirely evil? Where 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 do we get these narratives from? Well, I think we're noticing a lot of things about the nature of society at large, and uh, I, I would say projecting them onto onto drug producers and distributors. You know, there's this um, there's this cartoon from 1934 that I include in the book, where people are being uh, being driven by a slave master with a whip, and um, and on on the slave master it says uh, narcotics, right? So people are being made slavish under the influence of narcotics, according to the cartoon. Um, but you look at it from a different perspective, and you could almost sort of see it as as, uh, as a cartoon about the workhouse. You know, it's. It's sort of about um, the kinds of drives and imperatives that we're subject to on a daily basis, but uh, conveniently labeled narcotics. Hmm. Also, this claim, this actually links quite nicely then to your fourth claim, which is that the difference between licit and illicit drugs is a class distinction. Can you talk a bit more about that? Sure. Um, I would say in the official mythology, um, I don't actually know anyone who actually believes this, but in the official mythology, you know, illicit drugs are safe, whereas the uh, illicit drugs are dangerous. I think that most people would would recognize that to be kind of silly. Um, And in in the book, I really see this this almost schizoid distinction between the licit and the illicit as essentially... Uh, a distinction that refers to people or different classes of people rather than different classes of drugs. So, um, you know, if you look at the, um, at the, at the particular paradoxes throughout history in the late 19th century, uh, Chinese opium users were, uh, were a scourge on the nation, right? There were all sorts of uh, anti Chinese anti-immigrant laws passed at the time uh, that specifically cited the insidious influence of opium dens at the same time, morphine, which is an opium uh, derivative of, of opium, um, it was a legal medication. Uh, it had completely different cultural connotations around it, and that was because it was taken by a different class of people, the, the doctor visiting classes, supposedly. Um, and you see this kind of distinction repeated throughout history. So, in you know the post-war era, uh, opiates, uh, heroin was demonized, whereas um, all of the, the different kinds of sedatives. Uh, we're not, they're, they're fully normalized. Um, I think this, 
this uh, distinction is uh, is most well known in the distinction between cocaine and crack. Uh, chemically, there's not a huge difference between these substances, but in the 70s and early 80s, cocaine was, you know, it's really remarkable to look to, to look back at it. But you know, a lot of people thought cocaine was quickly going to become a legal legal drug that that it was essentially harmless, that there was no problems with cocaine. Um, and then crack comes along, and it's it it's it's being used by very different people, and it becomes the source of, uh, you know, an, an intense um, an intense drug scare that eventually leads to the eighty six and eighty eight anti drug abuse acts, uh, including the hundred to one sentencing disparity between crack and cocaine. Um, and in all all of these cases, it's really the, the the kinds of people who are taking the drugs that are the source of the demonization that leads to the drugs being deemed illicit, rather than any particular dangers or benefits associated with the drugs. Precisely. And then demographics are created, market demographics are created around the same, this same class distinction, right? Class applies to the sales, to the marketing of drugs, advertisements for Oxycontin versus illicit heroin. I mean, it's a, the class line runs uh, through, you know, the, the Venn diagram where class distinction is in the middle and has many circles around it, right? So finally, your last uh, claim is my favorite. And it's uh, something I've been thinking about for years, which is that drug policy is not about drugs. It's not. It's never been about drugs. My God. So tell us more about this. What do you mean when you say drug policy is not about drugs? Yeah, I, I open that section uh, of the introduction, that final section, with a quote from John Ehrlichman. Uh, he was um, he worked for Nixon. Uh, I'm forgetting what his exact position was. Uh, but he has this really remarkable head quote. of the White House Domestic Council. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, he has this remote, really remarkable quote uh, about um, what they were doing with the you know launch of the acute phase of the war on drugs in America, and he basically says, you know, who were our political enemies? It was black people in the New Left, uh, and you can't make it illegal to be black or on the New Left. So what can you do? You can demonize certain drugs, associate those groups with the drugs, and then take care of them that way. Uh, it's a jarring admission. It's one that's really difficult to, to to sort of fully make make sense of. But but in a way, I think Ehrlichman was kind of telling us all what we already knew, which is that when any time you get uh, the demonization or control of certain drugs, there are attempts, uh, you know, explicit or not, to control or demonize other aspects or people within society. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I think that in, in a lot of ways, people uh, tend to focus on the drugs themselves and dealing with the various problems that we associate with drugs. And so a lot of the leading um, uh, policy reforms of liberal drug reformers, you know, legalizing uh, uh, marijuana or descheduling marijuana, um, uh, revising rules around mandatory minimums, um, you know, uh, different reforms around around uh, thuggish policing and whatnot. All these are, are great ideas, um, but I do think that when we're talking about the broader problems associated with both drug prohibitionism and drug consumption, um, they touch upon other aspects of, of society that we should we should really bring into view uh, in our discussions of drugs. And so, in the conclusion, I say, look. You know, we're not going to deal with uh, the various problems that bring up simply by by little tweaks in, in drug policy reform. Uh, we really need to look at the broad, a broader structural transformation of society, specifically around 
employment and healthcare if we're going to deal with those problems. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Before we get to solutions, you call your book Quick Fixes. What are you referring to with that? Well, Quick Fixes, I think, refers both to drug consumption and drug policy. And in both cases, you know, these, this is a term that has, has been used by people other than myself. Um, I think that uh, various Congress people talked about the 1986 uh, Anti-Drug Abuse Act, as well as the 1988 version, as essentially quick fixes as ways in which to say that we're dealing with various social ills, but to actually avoid uh, dealing with the structural causes of them. And I would say the same goes for drug consumption, really, you know, and throughout the book, I sort of see drug prohibitionism and drug enthusiasm as two sides of the same coin. Um, drugs are, are uh, spectacular benefits to, to human beings in so many different ways, um, but they're not going to solve our basic problems. They're going to alleviate the pain associated with them sometimes. They're going to help us perform better. They're going to be be a lot of fun a lot of the time, um, but they're not going to ultimately like deal with you know problems of human uh, meaning and politics and happiness uh, on on a grand scale. And so I, I think that we should um, you know think about the, the the longer fixes as well. Anytime we're talking about drugs, uh, we shouldn't just focus on the quick fixes, both in terms of policy and consumption, but on what what they uh, what they help us avoid doing. Um, you know, I, I, and that's not to denigrate quick fixes. I think anyone who's gone on YouTube and looked up home repair improvements knows <laughs> that a quick fix is a real fix, right? It's a real <laughs> fix. It works. But, Hopefully. But the question is, yeah, I mean, depending on, on what YouTube videos you're watching, I guess. I suppose. Um, but, the, but the hope is that, you know, that, uh, that we can see that you, you, you add up too many quick fixes and you're going to be left with a p- pretty shaky foundation. Uh, and so we should always be looking for those longer fixes as well. Right. Because that foundation is shaky and it's dangerous right now. I mean, we've had over 110,000 overdose deaths per year for the past couple of years since 2021. As uh, consumption is up, as prohibitionist tendencies are up, overdose deaths are also up. And if drugs are quick fixes, as you said, their solutions aren't. So now I want to talk a little bit about um, responses to the drug crisis. I found that you, your book provides a really interesting, but also very little discussed perspective. So while you criticize the drug war and its concurrent rates of incarceration and social damage, you're also really critical of the somewhat knee-jerk reaction on the left, which is to replace criminalization with legalization. 
What's your take when people say we should replace the drug war with a legal, regulated, and possibly less poisoned drug market? First of all, it should be just said that there's a lot of uh, good in those ideas as well. And I think that in a better society, um, all drugs would be legal and regulated. Um, The question, though, is not about uh, legalization in a better society. It's about legalization in this one where it means bringing very powerful psychoactive substances into the realm of, into the official realm of profit extraction. And as dangerous uh, and, um, you know, I mean, yeah, as, as, as dangerous as, um, as uh, illicit drug dealers can be, I, I don't think, I think they pale in comparison to CEOs. Um, that's, that's the sort of basis of the critique, you know, and when people, um, take up these ideas about legalization, uh, they oftentimes miss the fact that it's, um, it's the free marketeers, it's you know the Milton Friedmans of the world that have classically uh, championed drug, drug legalization. I mean, in their minds, it was, uh, it was the key example showing that um, when you don't allow everything to be traded on the free market, you get all of these perverse consequences. Um, so there's, you know, a sort of odd ideological history to drug legalization. Um, but, but I would say that the, the, the sort of like key thing to me is that but behind the, uh, the efforts of a lot of liberal drug reformers is this idea that drugs that, you know, I mean, basically any drug can be used in a safe manner. And in the abstract, that is something I absolutely agree with. So, um, you know, uh, people like uh, Andrew Weil talk about how any drug can be used safely. Um, Dr. Carl Hart today, a uh, Columbia psychologist, talks about, uh, you know, how drugs, even like heroin, uh, which are you know, probably the most demonized drug in the history of the United States, uh, even heroin can be used recreationally in a safe manner. And, and these are all claims that I agree with in the abstract, and I understand why they're made, right? I think that the, the thought is that drug prohibitionism flows from bad ideas about drugs, uh, about illegal drugs in particular. And, and I agree with that in the abstract. But again, if you just look at the effects of these drugs on, um, on contemporary American society, you just talked about 110,000 overdose dra- uh, deaths a year. The ways in which people see heroin, uh, methamphetamine, uh, different, different kinds of opioids, they, they see suffering. They see real personal struggles, and uh, you know the, the the liberal attempts to destigmatize drugs and to say, oh, they're actually not the the harmful substances that they've made out to be that they're they're made out to be in the press. I understand the 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 reason why why people say that 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 kind of thing, but at the same time, it's wildly out of line with how a lot of people experience um, uh, drugs on an everyday basis. And so, there's a kind of political disconnect that I think is quite dangerous, actually. It also discounts our own lived reality of the currently legal drug market, the way that they're marketed and the damage they cause. It does seem odd to assume that those same practices wouldn't be applied to any other uh, eventually legal market. Um, yeah, but I, I love the idea uh... that illicit dealers and CEOs are basically the same with the exact same sort of driving enthusiasms. If there's one way I would wrap up your book, it's that <laughs> illicit drug dealers and CEOs, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that probably on a mass scale, the CEOs are maybe more dangerous. Um, 
but uh, you know, this is probably something I should have uh, mentioned just at the beginning when you asked sort of like why I took on the project. Um, I, I've been teaching a class on uh, the, uh, the sociology and history of drugs uh, at, at Arizona State for a while now. And when I first started teaching the class, I thought that students would be much more interested in, um, in the recreational drugs, you know, teaching at, at a college campus. Like I thought that that would be the kind of student who showed up in class. But, um, but really, it was, uh, they, 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 they became most involved in the conversations around the legal drugs, around uh, e-cigarettes, around uh, different psychiatric medications. And there's a real ambivalence about these drugs, right? They, there's, there's very strong feelings about different medications that many of them had been put on from an, from an early age, from the prevalence of vaping uh, in, in, in college campuses among young people more generally. Um, and, and that's also a real, it was also a real driving force in writing the book. I think it's not just in the illegal drug market that people have ambivalent, uh, you know, ideas about drugs and are kind of scared of them. It's also with the with the legal ones as well. Mm. And statistics back that up. You know, the University of Michigan has released the monitoring the future uh, data for decades now since the since the early 1970s. And rates of adolescent, I guess you can still call them adolescent, young adult uh, drug use have been dropping uh, significantly for the past couple of years. We're finally getting kind of getting into that, um, like the post crack period. You know, as you said earlier. Cocaine's the one drug that does seem to have kind of plateaued in the United States. And uh, I uh, was talking to Donovan Ramsey, the author of When Crack Was King, A New History of Crack. And we talked a bit about that. He said that essentially... um, social interest turned against it. It was inspired by hip hop songs. It was inspired by uh, what sociologist Rick Curtis called the smarter younger brother uh, syndrome. People saw the damage the drug caused and moved away from it. I think the younger generation now is is doing something similar with uh, illicit drugs and also with the growing distrust of many of the psychotropic medications that they have been placed on for the past two decades of their lives, right? Um, But that kind of leads to my last question then, which is, what do we do with all of this? If we have major capitalist organizations selling us powerful drugs at every turn, if we're atomized and need a daily dosing regimen to get through our days, and if drug policy is being enacted to uh, basically, I don't know, perform larger social controls, how do we get out of such a situation? What do we do? How do we escape? Just quickly, uh, regarding cocaine, um, one of the things I did uh, in the appendix of the book is uh, is chart drug consumption patterns over time and try to fit them all in one somewhat confusing graph in order to just show the interaction between different drug consumption trends. And one of the most remarkable things about that graph is um, with the 1970 Controlled Substances Act, you get uh, drops in the usages of, of um, of, of licit drugs, of, of amphetamines, of barbiturates, of benzodiazepines, but also of, of illegal drugs uh, like, like marijuana. Um, but at the same time that all of those drug consumption trends are going down in the 70s, you get the uh, wild escalation of cocaine use uh, and, co- and cocaine imports at the same time. Um, and cocaine is, is it's really the drug of the neoliberal period. Um, and then around uh, 2005, all of a sudden you get this huge uh, uh, drop in cocaine imports. And today, 
um, it's just it, it's never it's never sort of like reached its uh, 1980s 1990s peak in terms of consumption and imports. So it really is remarkable that cocaine is kind of the drug of the neoliberal period. It sort of escalated its at its, at its inauguration. And as neoliberalism is falling apart, cocaine consumption is at all time low. It's just a kind of fascinating trend within uh, that broader history. Totally. Wow. Um, but, but what do we do about it? What do we do about it? So um, in, in the conclusion, I, I talk about the war on drugs first, right? I think that given the kinds of substances that are on the market today, I, I could see a kind of renewed drug warriorism uh, gaining new life, uh, right? There, there are a lot of uh, very novel substances out there that, you know, have, have kind of scary effects. Um, so, you know, in the first section, I just say, look, th- these are all the reasons why, um, why the different efforts to curb drug consumption have failed. These are the pernicious consequences. It just doesn't make sense as a project. Anyone who wants to take it up today is going to take up a losing battle. Um, that's the first part. The second part is to look at different um, problems in liberal drug reformism, and that sort of gets to the issues that I was discussing before, you know, the essential idealism, the political disconnect, all this stuff. And at the end of the day, you know, with that fifth orienting claim in mind that drug policy is not about drugs, what I want to say is that if we want to deal with the various problems that we associate with drugs in American society, we should look to broader structural reforms. So I, I don't think Americans need any more uh, drug scaremongering. I think I don't think we need any more drug peddling. Uh, we need to be we need to have a freer relationship to drugs, not just have not just you know uh, uh, medically pure drugs with safe routes of administration, but less stress as well, so that we don't feel compelled to use different drugs. And, you know, what I say at the very end of the book is that there are two broad reforms that would, um, that would really help uh, with the problems we associate with drugs, and that's a federal jobs guarantee, or at least federal jobs programs to improve the nature of work in the United States, and also to provide uh, uh, more and better employment for people, and also a, also a transformation of the American healthcare system, which is just uh, a travesty in, in countless ways. I think with these broader structural changes uh, with relationships to, to jobs and healthcare, um, a lot of the supposedly intransigent problems that are associated with drugs um, would kind of dry up at their source. Well, those sound like easy things to accomplish. I'm sure we could probably do that in a year or two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's reason. Why, there's obviously reasons why we focus on more attainable reforms uh, because you know we're at this moment where uh, everything seems really, really difficult. Where you know the, that that politics um, at the national level doesn't really reflect the kind of the different kinds of populist insurgencies and dissatisfactions with the American political system. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, we have to to press for those broader structural transformations, and it's really when there becomes political possibility that um, we can we can begin to deal with the, the broader issues related to, to drugs. Well, viva la revolución. <laughs> um, so finally, for my last, last question, um, what are you working on now and what can I expect to talk about with you next? That's a good question. I, I um, So I am spinning out a few different articles uh, from the book. Uh, I just finished up a uh, article about the current 
amphetamine shortage uh, that is going to be out with The Point magazine uh, in a few weeks, hopefully, or maybe even next week. I'm not sure how quickly that's going to go. Um, I uh, published an article in Jacobin magazine not that long ago about the uh, what, what I call the new temperance reformers, the relationship between the moralizing politics of the present and the 19th century temperance movement. Um, so there, there are various articles about drugs that I'll continue to publish. I'm, I, uh, I wear a few different research hats, and uh, I'm currently working on a longer research project that it won't be out for a while uh, on the key leaders of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, and, you know, I guess that they're uh, that that project is sort of related to the conclusion of uh, of quick fixes. Um, we do need a broad structural transformation in the United States, akin uh, in uh, in in the spirit and scale of the New Deal. Um, and I think looking back at the 1930s and how that happened is is really essential. Well, I look forward to talking all uh, about all of that later with you. But I've had so much fun talking about all of this today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Emily.